But we're going to turn now to the Word of God, to hearing, uh, to hearing God speak through, uh, through the Scriptures to us. And before we, we do so, let's ask, for, let's ask for His blessing and for our understanding and our transformation in this time. Lord God, uh, this is your word that we come to. It's not the words of just mere men. It is the words of your spirit uh, who has inspired your prophets and apostles to, uh, to write it. It is very much your word. And because it is very much your word, it is very much important for us to hear. But yet also, sometimes we have issues hearing, whether it be distractions, whether it be uh, we just don't want to listen, whether it be tiredness, whatever else it is. Even it could be our own hardened hearts. So, Father, we pray that your spirit would be in us this time here, working, helping us to focus, helping us to listen, so that Jesus Christ might be proclaimed and made known here. And that we might be made more in alignment with him, that we might grow and increase in our faith. Lord, we pray for the preacher up here as well, that the words that he speaks would be in accordance with your word, and that the same gospel and the forgiveness for all people is also for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Daryl is on vacation for the next three weeks, and since we've just finished up uh, or come to a break anyways, at least in Genesis for the summer. I'm going to be doing a three-week mini-series that I'm, I'm calling, Who is the Spirit? Uh, we worship the triune God. We worship God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But unfortunately, though, we don't focus on the Spirit as much as we do the other two persons. Sometimes it's almost as if he's forgotten. Or if we do think about the Spirit, it's, un- it's oftentimes in these unhelpful ways, or we treat him merely as a mystery. But he can be known, he ought to be known, and he's God, so he also deserves to be known. And so we're going to spend some time these next few weeks recovering who he is and the role that he plays in our redemption and in our everyday lives. And this morning, we're going to start with the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Truth. The passage that I'm about to read here for us this morning, John 14, verses 15 and 17 and then right after that, 15, 26, and going into chapter 16, uh, these are some of Jesus' final words before he goes to the cross. He's actually, in this time, walking with his disciples, going to the garden where he's about to be betrayed. And in these final moments before his arrest, these are the words that he wants to tell his disciples. So let's read. This is the word of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And going to chapter chapter 15. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. 
they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Amen. One of the most striking phrases in this passage is in chapter 16, verse 7, when Jesus said that it's better that he leaves. It's to our advantage that he's gone. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that it's better for Jesus to be gone and not with us physically right here? Perhaps you've had a difficult time trusting in him and you catch yourself thinking every once in a while that it would be so much better. I would believe so much more if only Jesus were here with me right now. Or maybe if if you don't consider yourself a Christian or if you're trying to mentally wrestle through with the faith and wrestle through who Jesus is, maybe you've also asked something similar that if Jesus revealed himself to you physically, if he was right there with you, then you would probably believe and you'd trust in him. But because that's not the case, then you're left to sort through this book here that we have called the Bible. But no matter where you are on the faith spectrum, whether you're a lifelong believer or whether you're someone who's searching for answers, that is not an uncommon question for people to ask. Do we actually believe that it's better for Jesus to be gone? Now, the core tenet of the Christian faith is that God is Trinity. Apart from that, everything else falls apart. He's one God. Yet he's eternally existing as Father, Son, and Spirit. Each of these three persons is equally God and equally deserving of glory and of praise. This is really the heartbeat of our faith. I mean, quite literally the heartbeat. It is the pulse. And without it, we are dead. No heartbeat, no pulse, no life. It's what sets the God of the Bible apart from any other belief. It's at the core of who he is, including our redemption, the Father sending the Son to us and then giving us the Spirit then in his place. And the the entire Trinity is at work in all that he does. Again, including our redemption. So, quite literally, no life if there's no Trinity. But sometimes, though, despite our affirmations of the Trinity, we still go about our lives living as functional Unitarians. Or, in other words, living as if God isn't triune. 
we rightly want to uphold the centrality of Jesus to our salvation. And if you've been around Redeemer, even for a little bit here, I'm sure you've noticed how all of our sermons always come back to Jesus. He's the figure of our redemption there. But sometimes we start believing that Jesus is the only person who matters, and then we diminish the importance of the Father and the Son. Or another way that we do this here, that we live in this functional Unitarian way, is by considering only one person of the Trinity apart from his relationship with the others. Maybe by only focusing on the Father without his relation to the Son and the Spirit. And most commonly, we do this with the Holy Spirit. By studying the Spirit apart from who he is in relation to God the Father and God the Son. He doesn't act autonomously, and he certainly isn't some mystical force. So when we think that it really would be better if Jesus were here, when we think that, we fall into that trap of denying the value of the entire Trinity. Because we focus so much on the physical presence of Jesus that we neglect the goodness and the advantage of the Spirit, who we can't forget is also God with us. So would my life be different if Jesus didn't go away? Jesus says yes, absolutely. Because he says your life would actually be worse. If you insist, if you really insist that it would be better for Jesus to be here right now, then friends, you would give up so much. In fact, most of all, you would give up the Spirit. And so we're going to look today, what is it specifically that you would give up? Well, first of all, you would give up the helper. You give up the helper. That's kind of a strange term that Jesus gives the Spirit. The helper? It makes it sound very me-oriented. I need help. What's he help me with? Now, some of your other translations, if, you might, uh, if you're here using a different one, might use the term advocate. It might use the term counselor. But those kind of open up the word's meaning. We'll get to that in a moment here. It might even use the word comforter. So again, we'll get to that here, but this is what's first important. Jesus doesn't just call him the helper. Right away, in, in chapter 14, verse 16, he says, I will send you another helper. Right, so who's the first? Who's the first helper? It's Jesus. Jesus sends, says that he's going to send another one like himself. Do you remember from our assurance of grace this morning in 1 John 2? It said there that we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That word advocate in the original New Testament language is the same word here for helper. He's going to go away and ascend to the Father, but it's not like he's going to leave his disciples or us alone. He sends another one. He sends us another like himself. And even that alone makes everything better. Because now we have two advocates. Two is better than one. If you're in Christ, so you have him as your advocate right now, interceding for you at the right hand of God the Father. He pleads his blood on your behalf as an everlasting pledge, as an everlasting intercessor that your sin and that your guilt has been perfectly atoned for. He's the defense attorney who stays in the courtroom long after you've left. He has a much better legal knowledge than you ever will. And he continues to have the judge's ear reminding him of the cleared verdict that he has given you. 
And he's not even paying attention to the, to the clock for lawyer's fees. But you have another advocate also. You have a second one in addition to the one who's at the right hand of the Father. And this one dwells within you. And this one will never leave. If Jesus is the advocate in the courtroom, the Spirit is the advocate walking along with you wherever you go. Reminding you of the first one when you're tempted to doubt that that decision that was made in the court. When Jesus promises to send another helper like himself, it also means though that his work will continue by the spirit whom he sends. His absence doesn't mean that he's not working, but the spirit continues to carry out the functions of Jesus on this earth. In other words, his ministry isn't complete. He's gone to secure our place in heaven. He staked our place with him, his, our, his, our claim at the Father's side, but he doesn't just leave us to scramble and to worry and to figure out what we're going to do now. He sends us the Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, sending us the third person of the Trinity, essentially to continue his ministry then in this place. Does it occur to us that his ministry here still continues in that way? That his church Even Redeemer here is functioning to further his ministry by means of the Spirit whom he's given to us. That the Spirit is working through us in this place right here. The church is full of ordinary people, everyday sinners who are saved by the grace of God. But in a different sense, this church isn't ordinary because no church is ordinary. It's where Jesus engages the world. But he uses ordinary people like us, equipped with his extraordinary spirit, to then go and to minister in his name. Jesus, having gone away, as, as I hope we can see here, isn't the same as abandonment. He hasn't left us on our own. It's quite the opposite. He, he did it with purpose and intentionality. At the core of it is love. He left us because of love. Jesus is loving here, and, give, and, and, and there's this web of relationality that, that we see even right, right away when I first started reading in, at, in chapter 14, verses 15 and 16. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. We have this, this web of relationality. If you, it says, first of all, if you love Jesus, then as his disciple, then you will keep his commands. That's just what disciples do. Uh, We display our love and our affection for him by following after him and doing what he says. And so what does he do then for his disciples? He gives them the gift of the Spirit. And it doesn't just come from him. He asks the Father for us, and then the Father sends him at Jesus' request. See, all of this is about giving a gift. It's a loving gift from the triune God himself. It's not enough that Jesus would only give himself lovingly upon the cross for us or that the Father would only send us his Son. That's actually just the beginning of it all. Jesus wants us to have the Spirit. The Father is pleased then to give us also the Spirit. And even the Spirit comes joyfully as this gift sent by the other two because he loves them and he loves us. So if you insist on Jesus, being here instead and not in heaven. And friend, you're giving up the gift that he so lovingly gave you. So we give up that. But second, though, 
If you insist on Jesus being here, you also give up the power in your witness. Going ahead into chapter 15, verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses about him. They're naturally going to be the ones to carry on the mission to take on his testimony to others. If they really believe he is who he says he is, then that's really just assumed. But Jesus isn't only speaking to his disciples. He sets forth the, pa- the pattern of what it means to be a disciple. To follow Jesus is to bear witness to who he is. And if we claim to be his people, if we are people who are formed by the truths of Jesus Christ who has come in the flesh for us, then that truth must be on our lips. Because what comes out from our lips is what spills forth from the heart. Now to be clear, bearing witness to Jesus doesn't just come from actions. It comes from words. Our words can either be invalidated or affirmed by our actions. How we live can either add beautiful feet to the testimonies of Jesus or make them repugnant to the world. But a proper witness to Jesus can't be anything less than words. Jesus himself didn't come only in deeds. He didn't just come with miracles. He came also in words and speech about himself. And that's where being a witness isn't easy. Because what's easier is putting your head down and just simply living a quiet life. But as soon as we bring words of truth into play, then it all becomes a little bit more difficult. In speaking and responding in truth, we're also inviting others to speak and respond back to us. And if Jesus caused division about with his words, then so inevitably will our words about him. And there's nothing like a little bit of division and hardship that exposes our inadequacies in the moment. All right, be honest now. I'll raise my hand. I'm one of these. How many of us have been in some sort of argument or discussion with someone, and then the next day you're in the shower, and then you think, oh, that was the perfect rebuttal, but I'm like 12 hours late. (laughs) Or sometimes, though, it comes down to our own lack of understanding the Bible or the truths of the Christian faith. Although I love the response of the, the man in, in, in John earlier, in John 9, the man born blind and healed by Jesus. And he's talking to the religious leaders who threatened him. He says, I don't know if that man's a sinner or not, but I, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He didn't understand a whole lot, but he understood that. But it might not even be the truths that we know, but it might be even our perceived inability to communicate them. Fumbling over our words not thinking clearly in the moment. But being a witness, though, is also hard because it has a way of revealing the extent of how much we really believe the truth. Giving a few hours of our week for worship and gathering together is one thing. I will believe this in good times. I might even believe it in dark times. But do I believe it enough to willingly open myself up to criticisms? Do I believe it enough to look like a fool to others and to suffer shame? Jesus understands all of this. He knows that being a witness is hard, and it's easier for some of us to just shy away or to stand on the sidelines. And that's exactly the reason why he told his disciples all of this ahead of time before he left. He didn't want any of this to be a surprise so that they would question what had gone wrong. He essentially tells them, this is the normative experience for being a disciple and for being a witness. You're going to face opposition, and it's going to hurt in some painful ways other than just death. You're going to be thrown out of the synagogue. 
Right? You're going to be, be um, seen as a religious nut. You're going to be tossed out in other ways. You're going to be even cut off socially from everyone else. People are going to kill you and think they're actually offering service to God. But that's why, though, that's why Jesus sent us the spirit of truth to help us as we bear witness. In fact, we bear witness with him, with the spirit. There's a comfort in not only going forth with someone who knows the revelation and the truths of Christ better than we do, and who knows how to think and to speak deeper than we do, but even going with God himself. As we go forth in our witness to Christ, the Spirit aids us in our speech. He helps us to think more clearly and articulately. He may even cause us to understand a little bit more deeply. Our witness is with him. We both testify to to the same Jesus. In fact, the Spirit doesn't just work in these direct ways. He doesn't just zap people with truth so that they suddenly become enlightened and believe. He uses means. He uses us. He uses people just like me and you. Jesus has given the spirit within us who then works through us. So don't get too hung up on your witness and how you present it. Because after all, is it really your witness? Or rather, is it the spirit's witness working through your witness? See, we're simply the conduit through which the power of the spirit flows and works. Or we're the pipes for the life-giving water of the Spirit to burst forth into this world. Our call is to be faithful, not in our intellect or our abilities, just to be faithful in the presence of our witness. And if we have the Spirit here, also to be faithful to pray. Because it's a Spirit here, as we see, as Jesus says, who does the real work of conviction. It doesn't not matter how weak your abilities are, It doesn't matter even how talented your thought and your speech really is. The human heart is never convinced or convicted by our own power. It takes this power of God at work through us. In chapter 16, verses 8 and following, Jesus said it's the spirit is the one who convicts and leads to repentance. Jesus may be physically absent, but he continues his convicting work in the world through the spirit. He convicts those in the world of their sin, even when they're too hardened or blind to recognize it. We love our sin too much. We're too blind to see it. We're we're too blind to see the road that it takes us down. But the Spirit, though, just as Jesus did, brings deep conviction, which leads to contrition and repentance. He convicts us of our own pharisaical righteousness. What did Jesus do to those who are clinging desperately to their own ideas of righteousness? He just poked it full of holes. The Spirit does the same thing with us as he continues the work of Jesus. And he convicts the world's judgment of what's right and true about Jesus. He calls the question the world's skewed opinions about him. And he testifies that he is the Lord over all, even as he has conquered the evil and unseen forces which might say otherwise. Ultimately, this is a conviction that calls out for repentance and holds out the hope of new life in Jesus. And it's only the Spirit who can make that effective in the hearts of anyone. He brings the dead to life. He makes the blind to see. He brings waters of refreshing to dry and barren souls. Without the Spirit, there is no hope for anyone, even ourselves. 
But because of the Spirit's power, though, with our witness, even the most hardened or the most darkened or the most lost individuals are never too far gone to be enlivened and brought to faith. And so what do we give up then? What do we give up if we insist on pulling Jesus down from the heavenly places to be with us right now instead? We give up the Spirit who goes out with us as we testify to Jesus and who alone can make our witness fruitful. In fact, Without the Spirit, we're just like those disciples who walked to the garden with Jesus, but then ran away out of fear the moment opposition came. But third, we also, though, give up the full knowledge of Jesus. In verse 12 in chapter 16, Jesus has so much more to tell his disciples, but he just couldn't yet. There was so much more that would happen. There was the the betrayal, the extent of the sufferings and the crucifixion. There was his resurrection, his ascension, the giving of the spirit, his return, which we now are still awaiting. But there was no way that they could have comprehended all of that in that moment. They were confused enough when he talked about how it was necessary for him to die and to rise again. And then when you throw in the sadness and the stress that they felt when he told them that his time of departure was imminent, It's too much for them to handle. But more importantly, though, he had so much more to say, not only about the events themselves that would happen, but the meaning and the implications of all that had happened and all that would continue to happen. So how was Jesus then to further explain and reveal himself and then tell more about what would happen? The spirit of truth in verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. The Spirit is the one who would guide them into the truth. He would further reveal Jesus and the significance of his work and ministry. But that wasn't only for them to know. It would also be vital for their witness. And this deeper knowledge and understanding of the significance of Christ was to be for the generations afterwards. It was to be making and informing new disciples. How would the spirit of truth then lead them into all the truth, as Jesus says? By coming upon them to enlighten their their understanding and to work through them to write the the New Testament. And 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that, that all scripture is inspired by God. It is literally God-breathed. All right, the spirit is at work there. In 2 Peter 1, uh, Peter the apostle says that the scriptures that were inspired by the spirit of truth are actually better than the mere eyewitness accounts that he and the other apostles had. That's a more trustworthy, that's a better thing that we have than just simply having seen it. See, it's not the New Testament or it's the New Testament, not only the historical accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, but the letters also that were written to give further explanation on that central moment of history. It's the New Testament, all of what are there, that forms this fuller and more intimate knowledge of Jesus by the spirit of truth. If you only look to the gospel accounts, if you only look to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see who Jesus is, and you ignore the rest of the New Testament, Did you know that you actually end up with a deficient knowledge of Jesus? See, knowing Jesus is more than just knowing facts about him. It's more than just the historical record. Those are important things. 
But knowing him also means knowing all of the implications and the significance of those facts about which he did. Now, we wouldn't describe our closest relationships with simple facts. Well, they like this. I've known them for this many years. They don't like that. One time they did this. The real beauty and the real power in those relationships, those close relationships we have and what moves you to know them and to love them isn't just those facts, but it's the depth of the meaning about them. And the other writings of the New Testament explain all of the implications and the significance about Jesus to, to, to get past just the facts about him and to know him in a much more deeper and relational way. If you insist that it would be better that Jesus had stayed and had not left because then you would know him in the flesh because you saw him, did you know that you would really have a lesser knowledge of Jesus? The disciples did. They knew him for three years and they spent all their time with him, but they only had a vague idea about what all of this meant until the Holy Spirit came upon them and that truth revealed to them by the Spirit, it blew them away. It instantly transformed them from cowards into lions. Do we really think that we would be much better? So if Jesus doesn't go away, we actually know less of him and in a less intimate way because no ascension means no spirit of truth. And without the spirit to lead us further into understanding the work of Christ, then Jesus' cross just seems to be a tragic yet meaningless death of a good and misunderstood man but it's so much more. We miss that he died in the place of sinners. We miss that he lived a perfect obedience in our place, that he conquered sin and has pulled us free from its enslaving grip and how we can now live in hope and how we can live together in a beautiful response to him. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to hear his words and if you want to hear him speak, then come and listen to the scriptures. That's what he says there in verses 13 and 15. He says that, um, that whatever he, the Spirit says will first come from Jesus himself. That we may not have Jesus speaking to us in the way that we would like, but he did give us the Spirit to continue speaking on his behalf. And in a very real sense, the words of the Bible are the words of Christ himself to us because they are the words of the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't say anything apart, apart from what's given by Jesus. It's his words of life. It's his words of promise to look to him and his finished work amid our sin and discouragement. It's his words of command and law to lead us in righteousness. Even his words of warning and correction for when we stray from his paths. If you're serious about knowing who Jesus is, then look no further than his word. But don't just look to the Gospels, look to the whole New Testament if you really want to know him in his fullness. If you only focus on the things that Jesus said in the flesh and you ignore the rest of the New Testament writings, you're missing out. It's not too far from insisting that it would be better if he were here because you're only hearing the words that he spoke on earth while setting apart the words that he also spoke from heaven by the Spirit. In fact, to only focus on those narrative words that he spoke isn't actually listening to him because he himself said that the Spirit would continue to reveal him and to speak on his behalf. If you like Jesus, even if you're just interested in Jesus, don't just stop there. 
we need to reckon with all that he says, both from his mouth and from the Spirit's inspiration. So let's ask the question one last time. If you really insist that it would be better for Jesus to be here and not away or ascended, what do you give up? You give up the helper who Jesus gave himself, or who Jesus himself gave to you as a loving gift? You give up the power of your witness amid a hostile world? You give up knowing him better than even the disciples did during his life? Where would that leave us? It would leave us as weak people all alone, without an advantage, given an impossible task to carry out, and an inadequate knowledge of the Savior who we, who we profess to love. So even as we long for him to return, it really is good that Jesus is away right now. Because he hasn't left us alone. He's left us in a far better place, a more advantageous position to love him and to serve him by the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of truth while he is ascended and while he's seated on his throne right now. Let's pray.